You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I absolutely love having conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me. We get into the journey of their lives, not just the most recent bright and shiny thing that they've done, which usually, of course, comes up, but how did they get to there? Because I'm hoping that by you hearing other people's stories, you will see that pretty much nobody just goes in the straight upward line. There's twists and turns and drops and hikes and all sorts of things. And I hope by listening to other people's stories, it allows you to show more compassion for yourself and also to see that you're free to change, try something differently, enjoy your freaking life right now as you are where you are. On today's episode, I talked to Erin Faulkner. When I saw her most recent book come out, which is called How to Break Up with Your Friends, I was just like, yes. And I did not read the book, but I was just like, this is so important. I want to talk to this person. So we talk about where did that book come from, but we also talk about her journey, of course, and it was so interesting. I loved hearing this story, and um, this is her second book. Her first book was called How to Get Shit Done. She is the editor-in-chief and co-owner of Pick the Brain, which is one of the most popular and trusted self-improvement communities on the internet. Yeah, you know what? We're just going to get in. I'm sure we didn't get into everything in our life, but lots of interesting stuff. So check it out. Go get her books. Go get my book, F the Shoulds, Do the Once. And um, if you're not already, hit the little follow button, subscribe, and leave a review for the podcast because that really supports the podcast and becoming more discoverable by other future listeners so that they can be claiming their lives as well. All right, here we go. I love hearing about, you can talk even earlier, but I love hearing about high school. Right. And like what in high school, like where you thought you were going to do, like, did you dream of being a writer? Did you have any like parents or outside forces being like, Aaron, do this? Were you all like, what was life like for you in high school? Who did you think, who were you and who did you think you were going to be in this world? <laughs> well, yeah. So I talk a lot about this in my first book, How to Get Shit Done, uh, Why Women Need to Stop Doing Everything So They Can Achieve Anything. And I, my starting point is kind of high school because um, I'm Canadian. I'm born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And I grew up, you know, living a very type A lifestyle. I was very focused on studies. I was you know, class president and then school president, valedictorian and head of the debating team and head of the dance committee and like all of these kind of things. And was very much on a fast track to, you know, a very academic kind of scholarly life. And um, the first kind of epiphany I had was when it was, um, I believe it was the summer of grade 11 going into grade 12. And I was driving to my best friend's house and we were going to do, it must've been fall actually, because we were going to do some studying on something. And as I was driving there, I heard an ad on the radio um, to find Canada's funniest new comedian. And so it was just a short spot, but somehow I listened, I heard that and my mind kind of like lit up. And by the time I arrived at my best friend's house, 
you know, she opened the door and I was like, we're not studying. We're coming up with a comedy, uh, comedy skit and we're going to do this competition. And she was like, what? I was able to talk her into doing that. And we ended up winning, uh, the kind of the Winnipeg, uh, the, the like local competition and when, which was unbelievable. And cause yeah, this wasn't like for high school kids. This was like, no, no, this was in the, this adult, was like, like whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was a comedy club chain called Yuck Yucks, which was like a big Canadian. That's where any big comedians that came to Canada to perform would perform there, uh, you know, at any location and across Canada. So when they were booking, so then they were going to fly us to Toronto to the finals, like the kind of national finals. And when they were doing that, they realized because we needed to give our like ID that I, we were only 16, which was, it was (laughs) illegal for us to be performing in these comedy clubs serve alcohol. (laughs) And so we actually ended up getting disqualified from the nationals, which I was so bummed about. But my point is, is that's the first time in my life when something kind of intuitively, like from a gut check, I kind of listened to and acted upon. And it felt so different from anything else I was doing and, you know, which was like performing academically anyways. So I started performing in comedy clubs while I was in grade 12 then went to McGill, which is kind of Canada's, you know, Harvard, and was studying the whole time and doing comedy. And I got into uh, Osgoode Hall, which is a very good law school in in Canada. And on the eve of going to law, you know, starting my classes, I had this kind of another kind of epiphany where I was just like, I just don't feel like doing this. I don't feel, I feel like I need to give the writing and you know, something, a, a try. And so I called them up and said, listen, I want to take a year, you know, can you, can I start in a year from now? And so they said, okay. I told my parents that they were not thrilled. Uh, they were supportive, but not thrilled. And so the next year I kind of set out trying to do, you know, all the kind of entertainment things cut to five years later, and I'm still trying to find to kind of navigate my way through this, haven't gone to law school, and still trying to figure out this stuff. And then eventually, you know, I ended up moving to Los Angeles to really give it a try. But the problem was I moved to Los Angeles with like this high level dream, but no real plan. And I ended up kind of you know, I had a couple of good years, but ultimately ended up really down and out, kind of like straight out of a rom-com, like lying on my bathroom floor in the fetal position, crying like, oh my God, why did I not just go to law school? And, you know, I've got no money, no car, my visa's up. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. It was the middle of the 2008 recession. So the whole, you know, economy was crumbling. And I really didn't know what to do. I was totally lost. And so I called, um, two mentors that I had at the time that didn't know each other. And I was literally crying on the phone being like, I just don't want to go back to Canada. This is such a failure. Like this whole thing is such an epic failure. And both of them said to me, well, what do you really want to do? And I was like, well, I really want to write. I really want to do this. And they were like, we got to figure out, make it work down there. And I was like, look at, no, I've tried that. Look at what's happening here and there. So I made a promise with myself. I was like, I'm going to put a hundred resumes out on Craigslist and see if I get anything. And I got one response back, uh, which was to be a copywriter for a self-improvement startup. 
And this is when like startups and blogs and everything's just really just starting. So I was like, okay, I can take this job. I think it was like $15 an hour, like maybe 20, but like no benefits, nothing. I was like, I can take this job and stay here. But if I'm going to do that, I really have to put a plan around it, put a plan in place. And so, or I can go home. Those are the two options. And so I ended up deciding to lean into, you know, still the writing and was able to turn that opportunity into uh, my blog, which is called Pick the Brain, which is, you know, one of the OG, OG, OG self-improvement blogs on the web. Very successful. Um, I kind of hit at the exact right time, um, made a lot of connections in the digital world, and then was able to found another startup called Leaf TV. I co-founded that with a partner of mine, Jerry Hirsch. We raised a million bucks. Oh my goodness. Started this company, uh, did really well. The company ended up being acquired by a publicly traded company. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I got a call from a New York lit agent saying, we want you to write a book. So this is like 15 years after moving to Los Angeles, when I'd written, when I'd moved there to write and somebody's calling me and saying, after all this time, Hey, we'd like to pay you to write something. So I got super excited and was like, I had all my ideas of pitches of what I wanted to do. And when I got on the call with them, I started to like give them my pitch ideas and they were like, no, 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 no. We want the book to be about you. And I was like, so disappointed and like, what? <laughs> Who would read this book? You know what I mean? And uh, so I got off the call and I was really, dev- I was like, because I really thought, oh, this is going to be it. Like, I'll have this fiction stuff. I'll write, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I went into my office the next day and I kind of looked around and I felt like all of the women there, you know, the, that I had the good fortune of working with were suffering from the same kind of illness in a way. Everybody just had their heads down and they were going, 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 and they had no real, you know, there was nobody was stopping and appreciating what they were, had, what they'd accomplished, what they're doing, where they wanted to be. Right. It was just kind of like, got to keep going, got to keep going. And it was in that moment that I stopped and I reflected on the call that I'd had with the lit agent. And I was like, you know, I have done some stuff, right. Especially from being down and out you know, crying on the bathroom floor, you know, I've launched this blog, I've launched this other company, I've got a million followers on social, I have none of this is rocket scientists, none of this is saving the world. Right. But you've done you've done a lot of things. (laughs) And the kind of epiphany that I had there was like, how come this is the first time I'm thinking about this? Right. And And that's what I was kind of seeing in everybody that all of the women that I was working with. And so I actually had this thing. I was like, you know what? There is something to write about here. I'm not necessarily going to write about me. It's not going to be like my memoir biography or my life story, but it is going to be some of the stuff I've learned along the way and how we can't just keep going, 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 because we're going to just, we're going to crash into a brick wall, right? It has to be a lot more intentional. It has to be, the things we're doing have to be a lot more focused on what makes the needle shift for us. Because if you're not doing that, you're working to make the needle shift for somebody else. And that's a problem. So that's how I kind of started with my first book. And then I got fully kind of immersed after all this time into the right world of writing. And and that's kind of a very long answer to your very short question. (laughs) We're going to take some steps back to get into some of that, but I love all of that. And um, yeah, I love your like aha moment because that's like the basis of 
what most of my work is about is that like, sure, like have that dream and work on those things, but also enjoy your life while it's happening. Cause I had this, like, I had, my dreams came true. I wanted to tour um, with musicians doing sound. And I did that. I was a sound engineer for Grammy award-winning artists. And then I got to see firsthand that these people that are really living their biggest dreams are still like usually, yeah, like not actually enjoying it. What's next with this? What's somebody else doing? Can I like, and my dad died suddenly. And that was like my big wake up call of like, what the, we don't know. We hear like you could die tomorrow, but that's the truth. Like, what are we doing? So love hearing your aha moment. Let's go all the way back to the, the list being in the car with the comedy ad. Were you like, I'm assuming you must have been interested in comedy, like, like you liked it, you know, like, or maybe you watched certain shows or something like that, but you, you hadn't had a thought of like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a comedian. Of course. It was just like, you enjoyed funny things or. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I never had a thought that I would be a comedian or really a performer of any kind. And, but comedy was big in our house. We used to, you know, my like dream day would be like, if I was allowed to stay up and watch the opening monologue of Johnny Carson with my dad, which was very late for a school night, you know? And so like, we used to watch, you know, really good comedy sets and his evening at the improv was on at that time. So we would kind of watch that on Saturday. So comedy was, and laughing and it was a very big part of my childhood. So I certainly had an appreciation for it. But I definitely had never contemplated for one second getting up on stage and telling <laughs> telling jokes. So it came to it as a very big surprise to me. And it, it wasn't even like a thought process. It was so weird. I can still remember it so vividly. It was like I was listening to the the ad, which was a 30 second spot. It's not like, it, you know, just like a, it was a very short, like, you know, this is what we're doing. This is uh, this is how you apply. And there was no thought about it. It was just like, and this is what I'm doing. Like there was no, I wonder if I would know. It was like, I heard that. I listened to it. It kind of, I had a felt sense of something in my body. And then I was like, I'm doing that. And I, until I was standing in front of my friend, my best friend saying it out loud, that was the first kind of time I realized, oh, I'm actually doing like, it was almost like those words were coming out, leading me to do it as opposed to like, it was, it was a very bizarre, I don't know how to quite explain it other than something stirred in me and I really paid attention. And I think that that's like the really important thing because when you're out there being busy and doing all this stuff, you, you often don't know which way is up and down. It's imperative to take those moments every day to really find calm and turn the noise down on chaos because the answers are often they're always within us. It's just, we're often not paying attention. Right. And so if I hadn't paid attention in that moment, if I hadn't allowed that to kind of percolate and and come to the surface, you know, that that moment changed the entire course of my life. Right. And so, and that doesn't mean that every thought you have is going to be that big, but when you were out there, you know, it feels like so often we're in the dark trying to figure out what to do, but if we could just find some common peace of mind, on a consistent, you know, daily basis, I feel like we'd feel a lot more equipped to know where we're going, right? Because it's all within you. You just need to tap into that. Trisha here, because I got to tell you about these products that have been making such an improvement in my day. 
It's Sprout Living and their amazing plant-based protein powders. Their blends are freaking delicious and they have the best ingredients. There are so many protein powders that are on the market, especially ones that you will see at the store that are just filled with filler ingredients and they have artificial flavorings. Did you know that when you see the quote where it just says natural flavoring, that doesn't actually mean they're natural, so bananas. And a lot of these filler ingredients and sweeteners and natural flavorings that they put in there actually can create a lot of gut problems and stomach issues. You don't want that. You're trying to drink a protein powder because you want to feel good and take care of your body and your mind, right? Okay, so they are amazing. They're certified organic, plant-based, kosher, free of GMOs, soy, gluten, dairy, nuts, and most importantly, they're third-party tested, which means they're not just saying these things. They are tested by a third-party company that says, yep, wow, these are great. They are doing what they say they are. My favorite, or one of my favorite, because they're all so good, is the Epic Protein Mindful Matcha. It has 13 milligrams of natural caffeine, 17 grams of multi-source plant-based protein. It has this creamy matcha flavor that has coconut milk, ginger, lucuma, and oat grass. And also, besides the protein, it also has clarifying nootropics, a blend of ashwagandha, lion's mane, bacopa, and mucuna. And you're like, what the heck are those things? <laughs> They're all amazing ingredients naturally grown that support your mind and body function. There's no fake sweetness. There's no weird aftertaste. This is legit on point matcha flavoring without any weird flavoring fillers, additives, or anything. The sweetness is perfect. There's hints of creamy coconut milk. It's great warm. You can actually like make it warm or put it in your smoothie, put it just with water and shake it. These natural plant-based compounds have been shown to support overall cognitive health, improve clarity, attention, memory, and more. So it really is a no-brainer to add this blend to your day. Check them out at SproutLiving.com and use code CLAIMIT20% off for your order. Whatever you get, use code CLAIMIT20% off and let me know. Do you get them? Do you love them? SproutLiving.com. We keep our minds like so busy, busy and, like analyzing right. everything. And what about this? And what about that? Whatever that, that a lot of times, yeah, we aren't connected to our feelings in these like gut moments. Cause it's just like, or you like feel it and it's just like, oh wait, but what I'm, I should be doing this. But like, Ugh. right. And you, and you push it down. <laughs> yeah. And what I kind of say, I mean, the entire first book is a real look at modern female productivity or feminine productivity and what that means and why we are so off kilter. And like, you know, so many people are so afraid to spend five seconds alone with themselves. That's why I think of, there's there's so much overscheduling and you can't have any sec. It's not about productivity, right? And like you can do all the things you want, but if you're doing it without active intentional purpose, you're just busy. You're not productive. And there's a huge chasm between being busy and productive, like truly productive. So that listening component is just, if you want to talk about productivity, it is just quintessential to really getting stuff done in a meaningful way that moves the needle forward for you. I love that. And so what was, you were going to be a lawyer and what was, was that something like you had felt like I for sure want this or like, okay, this is just a good next step or, you know, like. Mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I am at my core a very, you know, I like school. I do well at school. And so I like studying. And so it's not, you know, and the idea of law is something that's very, very interesting to me and I think matches my skill set. So it's not like I was like, if I, if I was like, I'm going to be a doctor because that's something important to do, that would not have, even though I come from a family of doctors, that does not align with who I am at all. But there's something about the law that is particularly intriguing. You know, I love being on the debate team and I love, you know, I love sparring over this idea. So it's not something that like, it was something that was you know, just something to do. It was kind of specific to who I am. And that's why I had such a complete freak out when I was in Los Angeles, where it was like, it's not like I had rejected the family business because that didn't have anything to do with me. Law really is something that interests me. And I'd made a choice to not do it. And I was like, oh, oh my God, like, oh, I think I've really messed up here. Um, It's just that it wasn't, I think there was something better for me. Right. And so even that, it's like, you know, I could have had a very good life, I think. I feel like being a lawyer. And and it's not that I would have been any there, there would have been any discontent there. It's just would that have spoken to the highest version or the most curious version of myself? No, I don't think so. And I I'm happy that I made those choices, even though there were many scary moments along the way. And what was like I just can't imagine too being 16. Okay, let's not just try comedy. We're going to try out for this thing without having any prior knowledge of like, yeah, like writing jokes. Cause like, yeah, I didn't even just in the last several years with like knowing some comedians and of course with social media and people in podcasts where people are talking more than it's like, right. Like how much comedians are working on writing? Like, it's not like you get up on stage and like whatever. So how did you even like, know? did you back then like, know like, okay, we have to come up with a, you know, well, we did it. So there were the two of us and we did it for, in a very sketch, it was like a sketch comedy, Got you know, it. as opposed to one person. We, uh, we were both very into Saturday Night Live. So uh, yeah, but I, we, I had no, I'd never written a joke or a funny sketch really in my life. And I don't know what, I mean, it was just so ballsy. It was like, again, like the intellectual filter was off. It wasn't about, does this make sense what we're doing it? We're just doing it. And, and so we wrote, I think we wrote like, I think the first thing we did was like six sketches. Yeah. It had to be, it had to be between 10 and 15 minutes, minutes. So we wrote about six sketches and there were two, two, they were about two minutes each. And I don't know why we thought we could do this. (laughs) (laughs) We were going because we were going up against comedians that had been at least on the amateur circuit for a long time, you know, and they were all men, all older men. It was such a weird world. And here we are, these two private school girls that are, you know, wearing kilts to school every day and like pretty much a real goody goody. I mean, I have a kind of a like a dark, not dark, but like I have like a rebellious. I have a bit of a rebellious side, but largely, you know, I'm doing all, you know, I'm a straight A student and doing, you know, ticking off all those boxes. So like, what were we, I mean, it was so fish out of water. And I think that was also the appeal. Like when we got up on stage and we, I not only, like I was 16, but I looked like 13. Like I I looked so, I mean, I plastered on makeup, you know, but like still that almost in a way makes you look young, younger. It can make you just like, like, what is this doll with this makeup all like all over her face? 
But I think that was part of the appeal. People were so surprised. And I, I remember in, in, in those days, like smoking was still allowed, you know, indoors. So like we walked up in like this haze of smoke and like, it was like actual cigarette smoke and it was, it was just so weird. And I think that was part of the original appeal for, for, for the judges and the audience was just like, Oh my God, because it was just a sea of like older men that drank a lot, probably like that were performing and they were funny, but it was like, and then me and my 16 year old girl partner talking about private school and both of our dads were psychiatrists. And so we had a lot about that. And like, I don't know, it was weird. And then when you pursue, you continued to pursue comedy in college, whatever. And I'm assuming that was on your own, right? Yeah. No, because we went to the same, we went to the same university. Oh, so you're, you and your friend continued. So, so it wasn't uh-huh. like you doing stand up. It was like you guys continuing like to do sketch comedy. Yeah. We hung this sketch thing. And then we both got into law school and she went and I didn't. And that's when we split. Oh, wow. So that also probably made that choice even bigger. A lot bigger. I was begging her to like, you know, and she was like, because we both moved to, so we, uh, from Montreal, we both moved to Toronto. That's where the law school is. So she went to school. I did. I called and got a deferral, but I was in Toronto and I was like, we can still do this. Like, you know, we can just do it here. And at first she was like, yes, but then, you know, the first year of law school is like on the first day, she was like, I absolutely cannot, <laughs> cannot do this. I've got 55,000 textbooks to read in case law and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, then I had to really define like, what, what the hell am I doing? Because my whole identity is like a, a comedian was in this sketch world. So that was a whole learning curve also. Did you then, did you continue to do like sketch and find like a group or did you then switch to like trying to do stand up? I did. I I was part of an improv, not a performing trip, but like a, a prep, kind of like a groundlings thing, like the, which is a, you know, the LA group. Yeah. Uh, like something S like a sec, it's called second city. So that. Oh, right. Okay. And so I was part of that. Um, but I ended up trying to do, which was a real failed experiment. I tried to do acting. So I got an agent. I was auditioning all the time. It says, I'm not that, that is not a leap I should have made. <laughs> I'm not that good of an actress. And so, and while I was doing that, I was like writing, but it was challenging because I'm in Toronto, I'm, which is not the epicenter of, of this whole world. Big, It's kind of big for acting, but not really for writing. And so I had a couple of friends that had shows out of Los Angeles and I started kind of seeing what their path was and started writing spec scripts and that kind of stuff, which was really difficult. Again, I had no education. I had no on the, I was just kind of figuring this stuff out. Right, yeah. And where did that go from? So was it because I'm guessing if you're in sketch, then you are like writing yeah, like that is a, uh, is that like sort of a start into writing a show, but it's like a very short show. So like you are starting to like get like, oh, okay, I'm not just performing. I like writing these things and like, okay, then how can I write more? Like writing an entire show or writing for a sitcom or something. Right. Yes, exactly. So those little sketches are, you know, little scenes and that's it. That's exactly right. And then I would start to develop, you know, out of the sketches, I started to develop characters that then would show up in other things. And then, so it wasn't that big of a transition to start writing screenplays 
or television episodes. But again, it was, you know, I'm working on a project right now, which is, which is a screenplay and the producers are just came we had a big meeting and they got my first draft and really loved it. And they said, okay, we let's, we want you to do before we do the second draft, we want you to do a beat sheet about, you know, da, 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 da. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I went home and I was like, I don't even know what a beat sheet is. Like, I think I can piece together what a beat, but, but like, they're like, we want you to do this, the Snyder, the Snyder method, uh, beat sheet. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And I immediately went home and like was Googling. Like, I have no idea what that, like I have zero classic training on any of this. And so I'm still fuddling my way. <laughs> I love it. Even though I'm being paid now for it, I'm still fuddling away, like figuring it out what exactly I am doing. Love it. So, okay. So that's how you got into like, okay, I want to write more. Um, mm-hmm. And so then you did end up choosing to move to LA and try there. Yes. And I, and I did have some friends here where, that who were in the business and they were, you know, very helpful in like kind of guiding, like, you know, the steps that I needed to do and blah, blah, blah. But I moved here with no money. I like I had, you know, I had 700 Canadian dollars and uh, no plan. I was sleeping on friends' couches and, you know, it was, a bit, it also, it ultimately, I had, as I said, there were some good years, but ultimately like that writing, I got close very many times. I was, you know, signed by a couple of very big agencies, but nothing ever actually became something. I had properties that were optioned. I had, you know, but then were never made and were never taken to the, and so I just couldn't find momentum and I couldn't find money, you know, which is like the biggest problem there. And, uh, so ultimately it ended up really, you know, I just didn't have a plan. I had all of these good intentions and I felt like I had uh, a reasonable level of talent I just thought I was going to kind of show up and something was going to happen. And that is a really um, passive way to live your life and ineffective way to actually get anything done, right? You've got to have some sort of plan around what you're doing. And when you had in that low moment and you sent out the hunt, which I love the idea of like challenging yourself to send out the hundred resumes or applications, whatever, and you got the one one job and you were like, okay, I can stay and take this, but I have to like have a plan. Was it that way? So like, yeah, what did you, what was what you, what was your plan for yourself? Well, I, you know, first of all, I had to get over my ego because this was absolutely not the writing job I moved to Los Angeles for. Right. I'm like doing weird copywriting stuff for this self-improve this, you know, it was a very random, it was like a self-improvement review site. So, so, so bizarre. Um, and so I was like, well, first of all, I have to get in there and, and this is a new space for me, right? So it's not about the writing. I really need, number one, I need to figure out this digital space. Something's going on here. Something's happening here. I need to, so forget the, the 15 or $20 an hour. What's this platform? How are people engaging with this? Figure out that. And then maybe you can create some, your own thing where you can then write instead of doing copywriting. So that was the first plan was like, really understand the space, see if this is something that's interesting, see if it's something that's viable, really create um, alliances with other people that are doing the same thing that you are or similar in the same world and start to create connections and build like a kind of a network. Don't be such a lone wolf. And that was the one thing, you know, with writing, it can be very insular and you're not, you know, and so, and that was to my great detriment. And so I was like, if I'm going to do this, I actually have to activate a network. Like I have no family down here. I have a couple of friends, but 
you know, they're all busy doing their thing from a career perspective that had nothing to do with what I was doing. And so it was really be intentional with who, how, how I spent myself time, you know, out of the office, like how can I create a network, really understand the space, as I said. And once I identified that this was something that I really felt like this was something that was really taking off, I started my own thing, which is, which is pick the brain. And I was able to leverage those, um, you know, everything that I'd learned, the company was called people jam, everything that I learned at people jam. And then I created this network of other bloggers that were just kind of starting out. This is really new. Like this whole, you know, I can't even tell you like how rudimentary the platform I was like blogging on was crazy. I taught myself how to do very kind of low level coding because I knew that was going to be a thing. And I had to get my blog set up and like, you know, it couldn't just, you know, so it was from scratch. All this stuff was from scratch. And so I really was like, got very curious about the world, the space, the people in the space, making connections in the space. And then what happened was because I'd made those connections with those four or five other blogs, self-improvement blogs, we all started linking to one another. And that's was like back in the early days when that link juice because just started to pull you up the ranks so fast. Now it's almost impossible to do that because, you know, there's just so many properties. Right. Blogs were such a different oh my God. thing. Like, yeah, I mean, I remember when, I mean, I like had a blog, but not like, like it wasn't like, like I didn't do it like anything, but like, I remember when blogs were the thing and I was like, oh, let me follow, I follow this person's blog and this blog, like, like, I don't, let me like, yeah, like I remember like that. <laughs> Uh, but also how did you, when you're saying you made these connect first, I want to know, like, what was your like idea? Like what was pick the brain where you're like, okay, I'm going to create my own. This is what it's going to be. And then how did you make these connections? Like, was it just like, Hey, I have a blog too. Like just, Oh, cool. I love what you're up to. I do this. Like that sort of thing, the connections you made. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing, this company people jam that I was working for that I got the copywriting job, they had so that it was like the site proper. And then they had this little blog attached to it, you know, as part of it. And I was wholly uninterested in the copywriting part of it and the review, this is the self-improvement review part of it. But I was very interested in the blog part, right? Because then I could put commentary and kind of do stream of consciousness stuff. And that was much more, that was obviously like writing stuff, right? Um, and then there was a company called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Oh, yeah. Um, which was trying to acquire People Jam and ultimately bought it. And what 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 was happening with People Jam is that it was actually um it well, it was a finance company itself. It was a startup, and it was it had not been able to find a way to leverage what it was doing. And so actually it was, you know, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and the owner was like, I gotta sell this. And in that, I I was the person, I started the last in the company and it ended up by the time Chicken Soup for the Soul bought People Jam, it was just me and the CEO left. I was the only one. Kept. Oh my goodness. And so that was another thing. I just promised to do like the absolute best job I could with this kind of shitty little job that I'd gotten. And I turned just that job itself into something much more meaningful. And I was able to be the last one in the company. And so when Chicken Soup for the Soul was buying uh, People Jam, I said to my boss, you know, they're really interested in the technologies that had been developed around these re the review platform. I said, they have no interest in this blog. This is a huge company. They're just going to 
they're just going to kill the blog. They've got you know, chicken soup for the soul. They've got their own stuff. They're not going to keep this blog. Let me keep it. Can you pull this out? Can you pull this little blog out of the deal? And because the blog had no traffic, it was, it was just like, honestly, like a little side thing that I quite enjoyed doing. And so he was like, okay, if I do that though, let's be, you'll be, we'll be partners on this blog. So I'll see if they go for it, but you and me will be partners on this blog if I can pull it out of the deal. And so he did. And so I had kind of, this was an originally part of the People Jam property that then I was able to take out and partnered with my old boss on this blog. And so I was able to leverage all of the connections I'd made through People Jam because all of these various self-improvement boot camps and workshops and books and tapes and programs were being reviewed by me. And a lot of times I would interview the people involved. So I made these connections. And then was it when I was able to pull the blog away from the main property, I was like, hey, this is what I'm doing. I obviously love what you're doing. Can we support each other? And it was so new that everybody was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, Got and I'd it. given them a bit of link juice through People Jam anyway. So they were appreciative and like, yeah, totally. So it was a it was a thing of being really strategic, but also getting kind of lucky with just being at the right place in the right time. That's also so interesting. So yeah, I wasn't sure when you were like saying reviews, like, so you were <laughs> being paid to like take like self-improvement things and then review them. Yes. I mean, and you were doing the copies like that, but people were like, yeah, what also is that like for you? Because were you even someone who was interested into like self-improvement before you got this job too? Because that's, that's an interesting question. So there were two components of the reviews. There were user-generated reviews. So we were trying to get user acquisition that people that had used these programs would come up and rate them. Yeah. And rank them. Got it. Okay. You know, this is, yes, this really works. This is blah, 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 blah. And then I would pick and choose certain ones that were either getting traction or, you know, for good or bad, and then personally do the thing, whatever it was, and then give an editorial review of my experience from like more of a, yeah, more editorial as opposed to like, I'm an actual user, like it just, it's a little bit of a different perspective. But to that point about the self-improvement as a category. So I grew, so my dad is a psychiatrist. My mom is a psychiatrist. Um, And in Canada, that's a lot different. It's not just writing prescriptions. It's very much around talk therapy that then you can also write a prescription if need be, right? But that's not, that's really not the driving force, or at least it wasn't when I was growing up. Um, And so both of my parents were very, very interested in all the things, mental health, and they're avid readers. And so everything from Deepak Chopra to Eckhart Tolle to to Freud to Jung to all, like all that was constantly in my world. I, you know, even though I wasn't necessarily reading these books at a young age, it would, they were often fed into conversations and, you know, point of view, you know, I was more listening, but it was very much a part of my world, this whole idea. In fact, so much so that I did the self-improvement thing. I did, da, 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 I did all the writing. And then when I went back and got a master's in, I'm a therapist, a psychotherapist now. Oh, wow. And so was that after like writing your first book? Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. It was in between the two books. So that isn't interesting that, yeah, like how you, how that ended up being like a great job for you. <laughs> 
I mean, you utilized it. Like, what? I'm like, copywriting for $15? Like, not the thing. But yeah, like, okay, how can I make this work for me? And then it ended up being like somewhat, yeah, like you had this sort of background that was probably pers- fitting. Yeah. And the funny thing is, as you just heard me say, like, if I were, when we're talking about the lawyer, if I had set off and said, oh, if I was going to set off to be a doctor, that would have been just something to do because you know, it's a prestigious job and it runs in my family. And the funny thing is, ultimately, I'm not that I'm a doctor, but I ended up being in that world in a very, very, right. I kind of let life guide me and look where I am now. I mean, I could not possibly have predicted this, you know, <laughs> it's just, there's no, this. I wouldn't believe this if I was telling this my, to myself, you know, at 16. Uh, okay. There's so many other things I would like to get into, but I want to stop it. So, okay. Now let's jump to you had the talk with the literary agent. They wanted you to write a book about you. You said no, and then come to your office and have this aha moment. Yeah. Were you able to craft and pitch the book that you wanted to write that turned into the get shit done to that literary agent? Or did that end up turning into like a different journey? So after I had that epiphany, I was like, oh, I think there's something here. And I reached back out to the agent. I was like, okay, I, you know, I I thought about it. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to write like a book about me, like in a classic sense. I do have some ideas. I'm kind of flushing them out. Um, I'll get back to you. And then I didn't get back to them. I kind of got lazy about it. And I was just like, oh man, am I really going to write this book? I mean, I love this idea. And it was a very unformed idea, right? It was just literally what I had just told you is like the idea. I was like, okay, this isn't, we can't really, this is not sustainable. What's happening here for women? It's just not sustainable. We have this great opportunity because the internet has really leveled the playing field, like for women, All, all of a sudden traditional hierarchies are kind of becoming a thing of the past. There's a much more fluid working, you know, because you can do things not in a nine to five setting, you know, you can get some work done at night. You could do your, we have an ability to participate in a way that we've not been able to, you know, in a traditional family structure, trying to merge a family and career structure. And then whole new careers are jumping up because of the internet that heavily favor women. So this is all wonderful, except for the fact that women being women, we're freeing up, you know, we're using all of these things to like free up more time instead of to like reflect and enjoy and whatever, we're using this time to get more stuff done. And that's totally defeats the purpose, right? The whole, so this was like not a fully, fully formed idea. And I, kind of kept flirting with it. And then the agent in, 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 in total credit to her just wouldn't let it die. She just kept coming back to me, you know, every three weeks, four weeks, what, anything, if you got anything, let's jump on a call. And I was like, so she really, really kind of pushed me in the direction. And then I was like, ah, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And we, we had a long, long, long conversation. I told her all the things that I was seeing. And she was like, I love this. This is amazing. Let's try and get some shape around it. She helped me craft the pitch. And then we went out and, and basically though, I didn't realize this, but in publishing, it's kind of an auction. So you go out and you set up pitch calls and you pitch them. And then literally an auction is set and people start bidding on the property. And I was like, I wonder if this will sell. And then it, it, I had a great, great result. And I was like, oh, okay, this is real. Now I got to write this. (laughs) And so, yeah. And that's how it kind of, and then I was, you know, piecing it together 
real time. Like it's not like I was, you know, one of my, the problems that I have is with so many of these self-improvement books is they're so ivory tower. And so like, and this is what you do. And this is how you do that. And for both of my books, it's really like been a real time experiment because I was teaching myself, you know, as I was writing the book. Got like, so for that book, you had this aha, you had this vision, but you yet maybe hadn't like mastered it in your life. Just like, how do I do this? Okay. I see this, but now what? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, that also is true of the second book, you know, that's kind of how how did that that one come about then? Well, you know, because so I was that the first book did really well and I was looking for a follow-up to it. And I went down many, many dead ends. And I just, I felt like they were either a retread of something I'd already said or something that was already out there. They just wasn't interesting to me. And I was getting very frustrated. And I remember I was sitting in a cafe waiting for a good friend of mine who outwardly, I would have said, you know, on paper was one of my absolute best friends. I was waiting for her and she's chronically late. And I was getting very irritated and I was super irritated about, I was in an irritated state to begin with because I couldn't get a handle on what the topic for this book would be. And as I was sitting there waiting for her, I sort of started to pay attention to how irritated I was. And I was like, this is so weird. I'm so irritated. And yes, she's late, but is that that big of a deal? And I started to look at it and then I realized, but she's always late. And how long has this been going on for? And so I started to realize that, again, outwardly, I would have called her like one of my best friends, but inwardly, and what was the reality is that this huge chasm had had uh, kind of surfaced between us. And in practicality, I don't think I could have at all said we were best friends. If anything, we were on the brink at all times of like, you know, ending it but, but passively, not outwardly, we kept going through the motions and stuff. And so as I was sitting there thinking about this, I was like, oh my God, if this is the way I feel about this friend, how do I feel about, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then the big epiphany of this book was as I was sitting there thinking about that, I was like, I can't believe this is the first time I'm doing this. Like thinking about this group of people with any sort of intention or like, what should be and what actually is. And, you know, we are a society that is obsessed with information about ourselves. You know, we know every calorie we're eating. We know every gram of fat. We wear stupid watches that tell us every step we're taking. Marie Kondo has us holding up chairs and sweaters and asking if they bring joy. And yet the people in our lives, you know, especially this specific group of people, which I started to think, you know, what an untapped power source this is, right? If we could just engage with this group of people with the same kind of intention and reflection that we do with our romantic relationships or our family relationships, what an unbelievable source of power, um, the ability to be seen in the way you want to be seen, supported in the way you want to be seen. And yet we're just dialing these relationships in. And so while it's not a direct link to productivity, I think it does dovetail very nicely with it because number one, there's the intention piece. And number two, how much happier and more fulfilled we could go out into the world if we would just cultivate this group in the way we try and cultivate these other types of relationships in our lives. 
And um, I was so surprised that I'd never done this before. And I started to look, you know, from a psychological perspective, why why we are like this, right? And so from a clinical perspective, we have individual therapy and couples therapy and family therapy, but no such thing as friendship therapy. It just doesn't exist, right? And so what that means to me is there's no kind of collectively accepted language um, around navigating conflict in these relationships. There's no blueprint about how to get into new ones, how to get out of existing ones. And so what we end up doing is end up pushing down a lot of our feelings, ignoring a lot of our feelings within these relationships, because we just doesn't, it feels so weird for us to rock the boat or really self-advocate in the way we do in these other relationships, because it's just not out there in the way, as I said, you know, clinically we can, there are blueprints and of how to kind of do the other types of relationships in our lives, but not for this. And I was like, uh, this needs to exist. You know, there needs to be some kind of blueprint, some kind of language. And so, yeah, that's, and that's what I kind of started to write. Um, and again, I was, I was looking at my own friendships kind of real time and using a lot of those, um, learnings, you know, as I was writing the book. Trisha here, reminding you of a few of the other ways that I'm here to support you besides this podcast. One, my From the Heart membership. I pour love into you there about four to five times a week, comes right to your inbox or to the Substack app where the membership is hosted, written notes and audio messages right for you. Heart talks, mind talks. You can write in for support and I'm going to be opening up a new chat space where we can have these regular conversations in there. So excited about that. Go to trishahuffman.substack.com backslash subscribe, choose membership. You can cancel at any time. Two, my product line, go to shop.yourjoyologist.com. It's the gift giving season for you, for others. My daily connection journal is one of my favorite things. I now have these mantra sticker sheets that are waterproof, so you can put them on all the things. I've got some insulated tumblers still in stock. I got keychains, my affirmation deck. Three, I have a daily inspiration app in the app store. It is called Own Your Awesome. And there are hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. You can go to the app, hit the little three lines and go to daily and set a time to get a reminder so that every day you remind yourself to go pull your virtual card for the day. And lastly, I do have some one-on-one coaching spots opening up. So send me a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman, go to yourjoyologist.com and look at some of the options and set up a free consult call. If you are feeling called to it, I work with people to be able to unshould themselves, to really be who you are, to find daily joy and fulfillment. I work with people who have an idea they're wanting to bring out in the world, whether that's a book, a podcast, a service offering, a product, whatever it is to make your vision be your reality. And I support people who are already out there putting themselves out there in any way to remind them who they are, to be their manager of integrity, to empower them, to ground them, to be that behind the scenes person that really has their back and their ear. It is so important. People do not do this alone. The people that you see out there, you know, owning who they are and living these successful, fulfilling lives, 
they aren't doing it independently. They have support systems. So get yourself some support, whether from me or somewhere else. Go to yourjoyologist.com to check out the options. And again, my DMs are always open at underscore Trisha Huffman. Let's get back to the episode. I don't remember when um, when I started doing this, but because, you know, as I mentioned, I, I like toured a lot. And so that would mean you are with those people yeah. for months and months at a time. You're like, and that's like your family right. and whatever. And then a tour ends and then whatever. And so I would notice like if anybody comes through your town that you know, then it's like, oh, of course, like let me drop everything to make a plan with so-and-so. And like, you know, like that's who I am. I'm such a good friend and like whatever. I have friends from here and from high school and from college and this, and I move around a lot. I have so many friends that are traveling. And at one point it realized, I realized like I'm about to like drive an hour to see this person. And like, I do love them. But also, like, what is this going? You know, just seeing too that we can have like different places for friends. Like that, not everybody is like, let me drop everything to drive an hour to have a conversation where we could do have the like we could just chat on the phone for five minutes. We could even like, probably have get over the same stuff in a text message real quick. Like, like what is like how like what does this relationship do to me? How am I going to feel after this? Like, and then too, like some of the people that I was friends with from like oh they're like a college friend or this or whatever. So it's like yeah, like these are my friends. And we see them and then like realizing every time I see this person, I feel drained. I feel stressed out. I feel worse, but that's my friend. But no, like that's so-and-so we've gone through so much together. Like we like try to talk ourselves into why we need to keep. And I would just be like, wait, no. And then noticing, wait, how come when I'm with that person, I don't ever want it to end. I don't want to leave. I feel energized. Even if we've been talking about like real dark stuff and whatever. Like, yeah. And so like just noticing for me, like how I felt afterwards was such a game changer. And then having the permission of, oh, I'm allowed to change. Like right. how, where like people are like, Not only in my allowed, life. You should be encouraged, yeah. you know? And, and that's the thing. The reflection piece of this is just so big and it was totally missing from this category of relationships, right? And and really understanding, I think you hit it on the head. How do I feel in this, right? It's not stop the logistics of we've been friends, you know, the facts of the, the the friendship. We've been friends for so long. They've done so much for me. They were so thoughtful. They sent me this. Doing this. <laughs> da, 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 da. That's all great. It doesn't, those, you, just because you have a shift in feeling doesn't change those facts. Those things are all still true. That's okay. But you feel differently now. And the way you feel in it is the most important thing because that's the present. That's the active. All of those other things are number one past and number two, immovable. And they, and that's for good or for bad, right? It's like, you can feel a different way about a relationship and still have all these wonderful things that you've experienced together. The problem is, is that because we don't make choices to get out of things when we've evolved and become a different person, it doesn't mean a better person than them, just a different person because if you're remotely interested in in self group uh, self growth self improvement kind of stretching you know the the limits of exploring who you are you are going to change you are going to move away from some of these relationships and they're going to move in a different direction from you and again it's not a question of better or worse it's just it's just you're a little bit of a different person and so are they and that is okay that's part of the game right? If you're, if you are interested in evolving, of course, you're going to evolve out of some relationships. And I think the thing is we stay, we end up staying in these relationships, some of them far longer than we should when it doesn't feel right. And it doesn't feel like to reflect who we are and, and how we want to be seen today. 
And what ends up happening is instead of the driving kind of memory or energy around that relationship being all the good stuff, right? You know, she was there for me. We were there. Da, 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 da. What becomes the driving memory or energy is this is so irritating. I feel drained by this person. I blah, blah, blah. And so it's like a double whammy, right? Like you don't get to be able to hold on in a positive way, all of the things that were good. And you also feel totally drained real time about this person. When if you just could have the self-reflection to say and then act on, we are no longer in a place where this relationship is probably, by the way, serving either of us. And that's the thing. We feel so bad about like making the first move or, you know, or, or, or taking a, a big step in that way. But the truth is, because we feel like we're doing something to the other person, but the truth is a relationship is relational. And if one person is feeling something, so probably is the other. And it might not be apples to apples. They could be feeling something in a different way, but there's no way it's totally copacetic for one person and not working for the other. Yeah, totally. It's just not. Um, and I totally, I love how many times, like the better, like, yeah, like that was something that I struggled with that was like, yeah, does this mean that I'm like saying I'm better than them or like this, like that, that, that was like a thing that I'm like, no, it's just like, there isn't, it's not like somebody's on a scale or I'm saying I'm up here and you're down here. Or I'm demoting the person or something. It's just like, right. sort of like, okay, like, yeah, we're like growing apart or whatever the thing is. And what, one other thing, and the thing is it, when you have these realizations, it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, you're going through your contact list with a machete. It's not about quote unquote, breaking up with every single yeah. person. There are certainly some per people I think everyone needs to step away from, right? If, especially if you uh, haven't done this ever or in like 20 years, right? There's just no way that everybody in there deserves a place in your life. But what I'm talking about, so there's that, but what I'm talking about largely is just being intentional about the energy shift. You know, you said not everybody's equal. Not everybody I'm going to be driving. Sh I shouldn't be dropping everything and driving an hour to see everybody. And yet without reflection, I am because everybody is just my friend. And that's what you do for friends. And so once you start getting kind of intentional with the way you're feeling in this relationship, it's not necessarily about cutting them out. It's just about putting them in a different bucket and then responding accordingly, accordingly with that energy, the right amount of energy for that person. And all. just thinking about these people and writing, you know, I have people write down the names, a very simple litmus test, just write down the names of everybody in your inner circle and just watch the way you feel seeing their name appear in front of you. Mm. That kind of instinct is such a good litmus test for the way you're feeling, right? It's just, what is that reaction? Or, you know, I, I talk about all the time when your phone rings and you see a person's name on the call display, what is, are you like, oh, oh my God. Or are you diving to answer the phone? Pay attention, right? That's really good information to have. And we're never paying attention, right? So once you even just start paying attention, I think that's half the battle because naturally your energy starts to flow in a different way. And, and with different measure towards different people. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, and I've realized too, it's not like, yeah, it's not like you said, it's not like you're taking a machete that it's just sort of like, there's different like levels or even like how I am like with my own boundaries of like, oh, if somebody asks me, oh, how are you doing? How I'm going to answer right. that is different to like different sure. people. And some of those might be people that have been in my life forever, but it's just like, oh, it's good because I know yeah. like they're, I don't want to have that conversation. Other people, it's like, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. Sit down, let me tell <laughs> yeah. You. yeah. You know, but yeah, like there's different. I've even realized myself, like 
oh, you know what? I love that person and I respect them and I admire them. And we're like not one-on-one friends. I see them in public. Right. I see them in groups. Sure. Love them. One-on-one, that's no. And like, you know, and then being like, right. that doesn't mean that something's wrong with them or something's wrong right. with me. Like and seeing that, yeah, there's different like spaces. And also people can go up and down and, you know, side to side in this like friend. Right. Thing. Absolutely. It's, it's having the, being open to like, a kind of swinging pendulum and 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 stuff that moves because we are fluid as individuals when you throw in another person relationally in the mix it's not double right it's infinite like trying to um be able to connect with that person consistently is difficult it takes a lot of energy and so to really get a maximum reward from these relationships it's just a question of math you can't do it with 20 people or 50 people right? Not in the way to really connect with somebody and be vulnerable and open and available and all of these things. You have to make some decisions, right? About who that main, I mean, if we have the same definition of what friendship is, right? You have to make some decisions about who's going to be that A team and where you're going to place your energy and then how you can disperse, you know, the remaining 20%. I'm just making that number up, but the remaining amount Uh, around the other kind of second or third tier people in your life. But not all people can be equal, not if we have a definition of friendship that holds both people really accountable in the relationship. Yeah. And um, the last thing I want to touch, I'm so happy that you wrote this book. And again, even though I haven't read it, just from talking to it, it sounds like I'm like, yay, it's like all of these things that I've been like doing in myself and trying to tell my clients for so long. And it sounds like you have such a great like resource for it that I'm going to have to I've already been recommending it to clients, even though I haven't read it. But um, the last thing before I get to the wrap up questions is I what I've noticed a lot of times what was hard for people to make these choices too is that for some of people it means then they have a lot more time that's not accounted for. Oh, exactly. And so, oh no, but what am I going to? Oh, but great, I can tell that I don't feel great with those people, and I know this, and I know this, but what am I going to do this weekend? But what would that mean about me to not have plans or like? <laughs> And that's why this book dovetails so nicely with the first book, because it is that idea of getting comfortable with being by yourself and really being able to carve out space for yourself to listen to yourself, to regenerate with yourself and not be so distracted and busy. And so often we end up tolerating mediocre friendships because we'd rather be irritated with somebody than scared and alone. Right. And so, you know, a lot of what I talk about is the ability in order to have the most dynamic friendships, you have to be able to really have a solid relationship with yourself and a fundamental understanding of who you are, where you are, how you got here and where you want to go. So that then that's how you can reject out into those relationships, how you want to be seen and supported. Short of that, you're out there kind of blindly collecting people that you feel like are nice or you just resonate with. But that's that's not nearly the, the, the degree of intention that I think you need to have to really have these relationships give back to you in the way that that you're giving to them. Yeah, totally. And that was, that was, that's one thing that always helped me, even though I had these things and I've always enjoyed spending time alone. So it was like, okay, great. Now that I know this, but I've noticed a lot of people, they're like, no, I don't, but then I won't have plans. I don't. Yeah, exactly. And then the fear of like, well, then how am I going to meet new friends? It's like, so you're just going to keep saying yes to these people that, you know, you don't feel good around instead of like, go to a coffee shop and talk to the person in line in front of you or two. But like, also like, you're going to have to start having conversations with different people. Then if you still, like, if you feel like, I don't feel like I have any 
great friendships in my life. Like, where do I start? They're like, yeah, you're going to have to get a little uncomfortable so that then you can make these powerful connections. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I say like, you know, it, there are some easy ways to start. Like if you have a dog, for example, instead of just taking for your, your dog for a walk, find a dog park go there. You know, there's a a group of people that have at least one thing in common with you. Right. And then once you get there, be curious about, don't just throw the ball and have the dog. Be curious. Who's here? Is there anybody that seems interesting to me? Is there, am I picking up on any energy that I'm curious about? And if so, find a way to talk to them. And, and, and I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, well, what do you mean? Like I would just go strike up a conversation. I said, yes. Do you want something? Go get it right? Because if this was about dating and if you were like, oh, I'm back on the market or I wanted to, you would present yourself in a really kind of proactive way, right? Where you're out there, you're checking out who else is there. Does anybody, do I like anybody? And then you would find a way to try and connect with somebody that kind of stoked your curiosity. The exact same thing is true about finding new friends in a meaningful way, right? And so it's, and that's what I kind of mean about there's nothing out there in the zeitgeist about the norms of how to do that. It's so clear with dating, you know, cause we've talked about it to death. There's about a million shows around it, you know, on TV that you can kind of watch, but it does feel so awkward to do this in a platonic sense. And yet the moving parts are really very similar. Right. And so we just have to get into the action of it all, rip the bandaid off and start normalizing a lot of this. And that was kind of one of the big, you know, the big impetus of this book is let's start normalizing some of these conversations, some of these behaviors so that then it doesn't, you know, cut to a couple of years from now and it won't feel so foreign or so weird or so awkward, but it is literally what needs to be done. Yeah. And that's another, I think that's natural thing. It's me. I've just always been good at talking to strangers. Like I said, I'll be standing in front of, in the back of somebody in line. I'm at the grocery store. I like whatever. It's just like, but yeah, just yeah. giving people compliments. Like you just have to sure. start in very basic ways. Like, oh, hey, what do you like to get here? Like, oh, your dog's so cute. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, so it really is easy. And not everybody is going to turn into your best friend. And they might be like, no. why are you talking to me, person? But that doesn't matter. Then great. Say something to the next person. Right, right. <laughs> and also putting it out there, like within your friend group, like, you know, just like you would with dating, like, oh, guys, do you know anybody? If you're like in a particular space and place and time, like I was talking to this new mom entrepreneur and she was like, God, I mean, I have a lot of friends, but I, this is such a specific thing, what I'm going through. And I was like, put it out there with your group of friends. Hey, do you guys know anybody? Do you know anybody that's da, 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 da? It, it's the same thing? You put it out there because chances are somebody is like, yes, you know, I know Anne, and she actually just started. Oh, I'm going to connect you. Yeah, I love that. Oh, all of a sudden, you know what? Be intentional about this. Just put it out into the universe, literally and energetically, and all of a sudden, these things will start to come back to you. You've just got to be paying attention. Yeah, it could even be like something like that. Like, okay, you want to make new friends, but what do you like to do? Like, you you like to go to concerts. Hey, do, do you have any? Do you guys know anybody else who likes to go to concerts on the weekend? Great. Like, let's go to con because maybe you can't, none of your friends, your friends are suddenly coupled up in this and that, and you don't like have people to do that stuff. Like, it's just that. Like, hey, hobby, do you know somebody else who also enjoys this? I want to do some more things in my weekend. I want to do blah, blah, blah. 
Love those tips. Okay, everybody go get Aaron's books. They will be linked. Real quick, what is something or things you do to raise your joy levels when you are not feeling it? <laughs> um, well, to raise my joy levels, I listen to music. Music is a really big changer of moods for me. I go for a walk. I go for a walk. And I really, it's not just that I randomly put music on. I really try and find something that's suiting my mood um, that I can kind of lean into or suits a mood that I want to get to. So it doesn't work if I just put on music that I like. It has to be music that, again, like really is kind of connected to where I am emotionally. So that's that's very important to me. And I do a lot of stuff, you know, as a routine to try and just, you know, to try and set my day up as as much as possible so that I can, you know, it, it doesn't mean I'm trying to avoid unhappiness, because I think unhappiness is actually really important just, just so that you can juxtapose when you do feel happy, like there's a point of reference, you know, otherwise even happiness can become boring, right? If you don't have a perspective. So, but I, so I really try and craft my day doing things that throughout the day that are meaningful for me. So I meditate for 20 minutes every morning. I take a nap every afternoon, uh, almost every afternoon, you know, pending you know, if something gets really crazy, but around two thirty or three, and I take a bath every single night uh, before I go to bed. And people always say to me, "Erin, how can you do all of these things and still get everything that you're getting done in a day?" And I, I say, I couldn't get what I get done in a day if I didn't do those things because those are things that are reconnecting to me to myself. These are things that are rejuvenating me, and and kind of giving me joy throughout the day. And because that joy is what kind of motivates you, right? Um, to keep going, to get things, you know, not get things done in a productivity way, but just to be curious about what's next, what's next, what's next. Um, and then a last thing I will say, and this is maybe a good way to come full circle. I make it a point to watch something funny. I particularly like stand-up comedians, but I go on YouTube and I find something, you know, from one of my, you know, five or 10 comedians that I really like. And I, on purpose, infuse laughter because I think it is so disarming. It is such a mood changer and so necessary. And I think like, you know, even coming out of this pandemic where every right very early on in the pandemic, I, I, you know, as like everybody, I was so overwhelmed. And so, you know, I had a kid at home and a husband at home and my whole world was just like, Oh, and also pen the impending doom of like, what is this virus? And is this, are we all going to be dead? And I leaned so heavily into like the darkness of that Three weeks into it, I was just like a basket case and I had to stop myself. And I remember my husband and I were watching the show Tiger King. I don't know if you watched that. Oh, yeah. So dark. I think everybody during the pandemic. (laughs) Right. It was right. That came out right at the beginning of the pandemic. That was like the entire world. (laughs) And it was the epitome of like, oh, my God. And I was like, I've got to stop this. I have to watch things that are funny. Not as like an avoidance of reality, but the, the even in the darkest times, you have to find the ability to laugh and have humor because it can just swallow you up. And so that was one of the biggest lessons even out of that, the beginning of the pandemic that I still talk about this all the time. And I talk about this with my clients. It's easy to lean into the darkness, you, but it's incumbent upon you to pull yourself into the light. And there are ways you can do that. Literally put on a YouTube video of somebody you like that's funny and watch that video. And it's amazing how one laugh can change, you know, your entire energy for the day. 
Yeah, we are so aligned on so many things, and I love that. I'm just going to – I'm like, I'm not going to even ask you the other questions because I know you have to get off, and that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, Thank you so much, and yeah, I'm so excited to continue shouting out your books and especially after having this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation, and I hope – that it has you thinking about your friendships, your relationships, who you're giving your energy to, and uh, go get her book, How to Break Up with Your Friends. You can go check all of her stuff out at erinfalkner.com, at erinfalkner on social media. Again, go get my book also, F the Shoulds, Do the Once, All Things Me. You're at yourjoyologist.com, and I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman at Claim It Podcast, at Your Joyologist on social media. I love hearing from you. So tag me, share the episodes, DM me, let me know that you listen to it. Again, so would love for you to leave a review and follow the podcast. If you leave a review, I will send you a gift from my product line. Go check out my empowering products at shop.yourjoyologist.com. I'm sending you a big hug today. And hey, last thought, What are you claiming for yourself right now?